the first thing that comes to mind is like they are not suitable for children. That is like, wow. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Watched It, the show about shows. I'm your host, Caitlin Bridger. I'm a professional flutist who would usually rather be watching TV. And uh, no, I'm not an expert. I forget basically everything I watch after like one business week of watching it. But I believe you don't have to be an expert to have a good old chat with friends and family about our favorite TV shows, the characters that resonate with us, and of course, the scenes that made us flip out. Today on the pod, we'll be discussing Bridgerton. Please be warned that there will be massive spoilers ahead for seasons one and two. So please do yourself a favor, binge those seasons, and then come back and listen to the rest of this episode. But as always, you are more than welcome to stick around if you'd like to hear two Bridgerton fans discuss their love-hate relationship with the show. I do want to provide a trigger and content warning for discussions of sexual assault, rape, racism, and other forms of oppression. And we will leave some links in the show notes for resources if you feel affected in any way by those discussions. Bridgerton is a historical fiction romance show that premiered on December 25th, 2020 on Netflix. It was created by Chris Van Dusen through the Shondaland Production Company, and it's based on the novels of the same name by Julia Quinn. Bridgerton is set in London during the Regency era and centers on a wealthy and socially powerful family of eight siblings and their mother. It functions as an ensemble show with other families of the ton involved in the storylines, but each season features a different Bridgerton siblings love story. This show contains way too many beautifully talented actors to name them all, but some of the leads include Phoebe Dinevor, Reggae Jean Page, Jonathan Bailey, Simone Ashley, Nicola Coughlin, Golda Rochevelle, Adjoa Ando, and Ruth Gemmel. If you enjoyed today's show, please go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and help us spread the word about this brand new show. Thank you so much for your support. <laughs> Joining me to discuss Bridgerton is Abby. Hello, Abby. Hello, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Really excited for today's episode. Yes, me too. It's been a long time coming. So Abby, how do we know each other? And do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? So we've known each other for about 10 years, which is wonderful. And you're also one of my favorite people to chat about shows, TV, movies, and other content with. I'm also... Uh, student. I use she/her pronouns, and I identify as a person of color, specifically South Asian of Tamil descent. You are also one of my absolute favorite people to talk about, well, anything with, but certainly movies and stuff. I think in the show notes I describe you as my long distance movie watching bestie. So <laughs> I am so so happy for you to be here today. But before we dive in properly, I would love to know what content you've been consuming lately. So that could be music, books, movies, podcasts, anything that you want to shout out. Ooh, so in terms of shows, I am rewatching Sweet Magnolias and now Gilmore Girls, as well as watching King the Land, a K-drama. Books, I'm reading Let Those Radicalize You with an amazing group. And uh, in terms of contemporary romance, reading probably the entire romance section of the uh, library. <laughs> Love that so much. And I have you to thank for getting me into K-dramas, actually. So that is super cool that you brought that up. For myself, I recently finished watching a Black Lady sketch show, which is so good, so funny. There's four seasons to watch, so I encourage people to check that out. 
And I've been slowly reading a book called My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante. It's an Italian book, but I'm reading in English. Though, fun fact, I have been learning Italian for almost 500 days. Thank you, Duolingo, for keeping track. I know there's a TV show based on, I think, the trilogy of books. So I'm super, super excited to watch, I guess, at least the first season after I finish this first book. And I'm going to try and watch in Italian because I think I'll actually be able to understand, which is like super, super fun. But yeah, I'm just enjoying my time with that book right now. And Abby, since it's your first time on the show, we would love to get to know you a bit as a TV watcher. So what are some of your all-time favorite shows and which genres do you normally gravitate towards? So in terms of shows, I would say Patriot Act with Hasan Minaj, Sex Education, Queer Eye, Hometown Cha Cha Cha, which is a K-drama. So I think genres are a bit of everything, especially romance, comedy, dramas, political comedy when I can, and then K-dramas for sure. Yeah, we have a lot of overlap, I think, between the two of us there. Okay, so Bridgerton, are you ready to jump in? I am. (laughs) Amazing. So what made you decide to actually watch Bridgerton? And did you watch it right when it was released or at a later time? So I watched both season one and two very close to their release dates. I was very intrigued by the trailer, very curious about how they were going to reimagine the time period and the changes they were going to make. And yeah, I just, I was waiting to see what would happen. Very intrigued. Funny enough, you're the one that got me into Bridgerton because when it came out in 2020, I don't think I'd heard of it. And then I think you told me about it. So we're both here (laughs) because of you. So that's kind of fun. I didn't know this, really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. That's pretty cool. Right, yeah. And yeah, I also watched really close to the release date. I mean, I liked the first season enough that when the second season came out, I watched it like the day it came out. And then I rewatched it and then uh, rewatched it again and then rewatched it again. The other thing I want to ask you in particular, because this show is based on books, of course, we need to let the listeners know if you've actually read the books. I may have read uh, all of Julia Quinn's books, if not most of them. That's super cool. I was so impressed by like the breadth of her catalog that you had encountered. (laughs) I found that so good. I myself have almost completed the Bridgerton series. I think I have two more books to read. The first thing that comes to mind is like they are not suitable for children. That is like wow, they're intense. They're very romantic. It's super interesting to compare them to the show because they are quite different. And the main thing I remember noticing is I was reading the first book because in the show, it's like I mentioned before, it's an ensemble show, right? And you have also like you have the queen, you have all these different families, and they all sort of have their own storylines that are intersecting. And so when I was reading the first book, I was expecting to encounter all these families and have all these different viewpoints mixing in. But I realized halfway through, I was like, why haven't we seen the queen yet? (laughs) And then I realized like, oh, okay, in the books, it really just hyper focuses on the two main characters. Of course, there are other characters that are present, but like very different to how the show sort of decided to make everything a bigger story. What exactly were your expectations going into watching Bridgerton and were they actually met? So for season one, I had many expectations. They were relatively high, I'd say. I think the takeaway and and what I was left with was a lot of questions after season one. So I think mainly relating to they'd introduced many people of color, so Black characters and South Asian characters as nobility and gentry in this world. And this was a big historical change. So I guess I was wondering, like, as a viewer, is this enough to make as a change without an explanation of the history, like the consequences of such a change and the impacts of having so many people of color who are kind of 
very, very much held in high esteem by the time. So that was a question I had for season one. I myself was expecting the type of romantic show it was. That was absolutely met. But I was, I would say, pleasantly, of course, surprised to see how many people of color were being represented, both in terms of background actors and main characters as well. And so I was surprised by that. And I share the same sentiment. It was just the sort of thing of like, oh, okay, what is the exact world that they're building? Because it's different from the books, especially the books, like I said, not an ensemble type of book really and you presume that everyone in there is white it's never stated because (laughs) white people never have to state that they're white uh which is silly so yeah i was pleasantly surprised by that but then agree with you that it sort of raised a lot of questions that i don't think either of us have had an answer to yet which characters were you most invested in or were there any that resonated with you so I'd say from season two, Kate and Adina, I think for me and, and mindful of my positionality and lived experience as someone of Tamil descent and having grown up here, it was really beautiful to see both of them as romantic leads. I think many details were included, specifically like their clothing, their jewelry, hair oiling, and I think the hobby ceremony as well. And I think it was a change for me, I, I think, in terms of period pieces I'd seen before and in other content I consumed from Netflix and other streaming services as well. With the beauty of their portrayal on screen, I think the question I had there was, was the writing team and were the showrunners picking and choosing what was most palatable for the audience? Or was this a true and meaningful case of representation? I think that's what I'm still thinking about and still working through. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're some of my favorite characters as well. Certainly Kate and Anthony, but Edwina as well. I absolutely loved watching them in season two. Personally, I thought it was a much better season than season one, in my opinion. Just it was way more engaging and I like the story and the characters a lot more. And yeah, I mean, I'm coming from being a white person who has, you know, no experience with anything that they might face in the real world, like in our world or in the world that Bridgerton built, which is like a reimagined historical thing, right? I remember, though, what I loved seeing on social media after season two premiered was so many videos of South Asian girls and women feeling so seen and and so happy that, you know, that they had this representation, which seemed like, from my point of view, again, which is not the primary point of view, but seemed like something very new and better than other representations of South Asian characters in the past. And of course, it's obviously arbitrary and and not useful to rank (laughs) shows or characters in that sense. But just like, I just felt it was so touching and so beautiful to see how much it meant to people of South Asian ethnicity to see these beautiful women and their agency and, and their complex personalities on screen. But were there other characters that you felt compelled by their storyline? So there were many, but I think um, Lady Danbury in both seasons was a huge standout. Again, a lot of spoilers to come, but (laughs) she is someone who speaks really boldly. She commands respect. She has uh, titles, property, and wealth. And she's very connected to the queen and the rest of the town and presented as one of the leaders. And in the Bridgerton series she's also a widowed black woman and this kind of presentation of someone with so much power who is one of the leaders of the ton on the whole i think what really stood out was how they had made that change from the book series we see a lot more and learn a lot more of lady danbury 
but I think what I would have liked to see a bit more was her backstory. So learning about who she had loved a bit more, her challenges, her victories. And I felt that, you know, although she was, yes, one of the Tana's leaders, we still didn't see her much, at least in season one or two, as a person and as a kind of human being as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of that. What's kind of cool, of course, is in the show Queen Charlotte, I feel like we get a bit of her backstory, but it's almost like an origin story. We don't get to see, obviously, like her whole life, but that already was a nice like thing that they did. I wasn't even expecting that for Queen Charlotte, which of course we'll cover in a separate episode, but because there's a lot there. But I love Lady Danbury. And then I feel like someone who's on almost like the opposite spectrum is someone like Penelope. I mean, honestly... <laughs> The main reason why I love Penelope is because she's played by Nicola Coughlin, who is one of my favorite actresses. But still, Penelope is really cool in her own right, obviously, especially because she is Lady Whistledown. And so she has her own independent thing going on in a society that really represses women. I think she resonates with me a lot, and I'm sure a lot of other people, in the whole aspect of her being a wallflower and being a bigger person. She would be on the fat spectrum and... Funny enough, you don't actually get a lot of people teasing her about that. You actually just get people completely ignoring her, which I think is interesting. You don't tend to see that so much with any person who's marginalized in some way or oppressed in some way. Often in a show or a movie, they get people who are attacking them or saying bad things to them or treating them badly, etc. And it's very like front facing and obvious to the person. In Bridgerton, what's interesting about someone like Penelope, who is deemed to be not beautiful, not desirable, etc. She's more ignored than anything else. I think it's a really interesting experience to show in that sense. Like even her best friend Eloise, it took her like two entire seasons to even think, oh, maybe she's Lady Whistledown because she, even Eloise doesn't even consider Penelope to be a very interesting person or someone who's capable of that. Even Colin, who's essentially Penelope's love interest. I'm very excited for season three. But even Colin like literally doesn't think of her as a person, as a woman. He just thinks of her as like a blob who's a, his friend. I think that's a type of representation that's nuanced enough that we haven't seen too much. Agreed. And, and wanted to echo that. I think on your note about Penelope also being Lady Whistledown. I really, really loved that. I loved how she was presented as Lady Whistledown, how we saw her in the carriage for the first time. And I love how she has developed and maintained her own income through that, especially in, in the setting and, and in, in the environment, which is often referred to as we can hear and, and learn often about the precarity of of women. And Daphne, I think, spoke about this quite a bit in kind of waiting for marriage as a means to be able to support yourself or be able to live. So I really appreciated that Penelope as Lady Whistledown has her own income. And I really liked your notes on how she was ignored in so many ways. There's so many different instances of folks mentioning people in a room without Penelope or folks kind of brushing past her. And I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, but it was very, very pronounced. So we just see kind of her on the outskirts. We see her watching a lot of the time, which definitely goes into Lady Whistledown, but it also shows kind of her place in a, in a lot of ways and how society has specifically put her on the margins and on the outside. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of speaking of Eloise, I'm curious what you think of her, which is obviously a big question. But what I mean by that is Eloise is a character who is the quote unquote feminist of the show, right? She's the one that brings up women's rights and how women are oppressed by society, which like, obviously, yeah, I, I agree with all that. <laughs> and I agree that it's 
bullshit, etc. But sometimes it also feels like virtue signaling from the show to me. I feel like it's a pretty basic performance that we've definitely seen from characters. It's like the character who in like the period drama who is strong minded and won't take shit from anyone because she's a strong woman. I'm like, okay, cool. Like you're constrained by like the decision to leave social class and patriarchy into your show. But at the same time, like, okay, like, is she being revolutionary? Like, not really. Anyways, I don't know. Maybe I'm being like super, super harsh. I still actually really like her as a character, obviously. I think that's necessary to have people be like, hey, why are we doing this to women? But like, how do you view her? Oh, thank you for mentioning. When I first watched season one and two, I found it very refreshing to have her commentary, to have her perspective, especially because it was a period piece. As a tiny little segue, it did also bring up some questions for me because, you know, like we were chatting about earlier, Bridgerton in the series was quote-unquote reimagined. And so, again, you know, thinking about why weren't we also reimagining a world from a point of view of sexism or misogyny? A lot of that was maintained. A lot of the classism, homophobia, phobia was maintained. So absolutely hear that in, in terms of, you know, a couple of changes had been made regarding race. However, we still had so many of the concerns of women during Regency era. For Eloise specifically, I think what would have been nice would have been a bit more nuance to what she was saying and a, a bit more kind of unpacking of what she was addressing. Because I think it's very fair, you know, for someone to want to question outright the world and the environment they're in. But I think the concern and what I noticed was missing was she was approaching all those questions from a position of privilege in that environment as well. So still was part of the Bridgerton family, still was relatively well respected, still, you know, was not a member of the working class in Regency era London. So I think what would have supplemented her conversations would have been a bit more perspectives from the staff of the Bridgerton household or from the working class um, members of the ton in series too. I completely agree. I think that's what I was trying to get at way less eloquently than you. It's just that, yeah, it feels like that classic white feminism, right? Even though in this version of the world, at this point in the Bridgerton world, you know, everyone of any race is considered equal and it's more like social class, like you were saying, that has been maintained as like differentiating between the haves and the have-nots. And yeah, it's that sort of thing. You sort of see it in season two with Theo, who is part of the print shop. And I don't remember the exact details, but, you know, at some point he or they both realize, like, you're from this upper class. You're still, like, a prissy woman. Like, you have all these opportunities, even though you don't have all the opportunities in the world. You still have way more than so many people. And I do appreciate that the show addresses that. So that's actually really great, I think. It's that classic 101 feminism of like, men and women aren't equal. I'm mad about this. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's a great first step. <laughs> let's keep going with that. <laughs> let's let's unpack how much worse the world really is from that point of view. <laughs> so I hope they sort of keep exploring that. I feel like they kind of won't or can't because like you said, they decided to keep all these other oppressions in this world. So at some point, Eloise is going to be the lead of one of these seasons. And I don't know, maybe they'll surprise us. I hope they do. But uh, I certainly don't think that they'll keep making her more complex. I mean, honestly, I'm optimistic about the writers and how the show is going. So I don't want to be too pessimistic there. By the way, I still love Eloise. I think she's great. But <laughs> just wanted to bring that up. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of her moments and a lot of her statements in both seasons 
are important questions to be asking. And I really appreciate the conversation with Theo as well. You know, it actually made me think of a couple of the interactions with Marina and with Lady Featherington. There's a moment when Lady Featherington takes Marina to, I think, one of the working class communities of the Ton. And her kind of statements are basically like, this is what will happen. You know, is this what you want for your child? And I will never forget this. So Marina specifically responds to, you know, I don't see any concerns with these good, hardworking people. I wish we had a bit more time to elaborate that and, and develop that a bit more, you know, what she was saying with regards to classism, what she was saying with regards to the sexism and misogyny of how society was treating a pregnant person, a pregnant woman in this situation. And Marina also has a Black woman who was also pregnant and how she was treated by the Ton, how she was treated by the Featheringtons was its own statement of, you know, a racism, of misogyny. And again, wish we had had a bit more time to unpack that and to discuss that as well, because I think in a different way, this was also a huge critique of the ton and of society in fewer words than than Eloise had, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that scene too with Lady Featherington and Marina. And just like the comeuppance that she gives her of just like, oh, you think you're like threatening me with a bad time if I end up here? Like, no, I'm I'm sort of from these people, or at least I'm not afraid of being in this social class. And of course, even though this social class is not treated well. She still doesn't think that the people in it are bad or undesirable people. She sees society for what it is and Lady Featherington doesn't see it the same way. And so, yeah, I don't think Lady Featherington's ever going to really develop that much empathy. But Marina is a lovely character. And uh, if you read the books, uh, I'm going to cry a lot one day. But uh, no need to, to talk about why. Can we talk about Julie Andrews, Dame Julie Andrews as the narrator? We absolutely can talk about <laughs> Dame Julie Andrews at any at any moment. <laughs> I remember turning Bridgerton on for the first time on Netflix, turning on, wow, I'm a millennial, turning the TV on. I wasn't not even turning my TV on, I was just clicking things on my computer. I remember clicking on <laughs> the first episode of Bridgerton and hearing a voice of a narrator and going, um, excuse me, is that who I think it is? <laughs> Oh my goodness, same. You know, so for context, having grown up with The Sound of Music and having that be like the soundtrack of my childhood in a lot of ways, I think it was just kind of very nostalgic, but also very wonderful too, to have Julie Andrews' voice behind and in front of so many moments. I think I always chuckled when she would read some of the spicier <laughs> writings <laughs> of Lady Whistle. That would always make me laugh, like just thinking about how she was like reacting to them in real time. I also really love the contrast because, as we know, Penelope is quite young in the show at this time and, and in the books at this time. And the voice of Lady Whistledown is an older, more experienced, wiser voice. So I thought that was also an interesting combination. I might stretch this to mean, you know, adding more weight, adding more power to Penelope's words and what she was writing from, you know, having been pushed to the margins of the ton. Oh, I love that. I never thought about that. That's so true. I, in my head, I was like, oh, you know, they wanted to get like the best woman in the world to do this. But, um, but that makes a lot of sense too, especially because at the end of season one, we find out who Lady uh, Whistledown is. You spend the whole season not knowing. And then at the very, very end, you're shown it's Penelope. So then the logical question became, okay, for season two, is Penelope going to do the voiceover? Because now we know it's her, but they kept Julie Andrews. And yeah, I love your point of like giving her some almost like legitimacy as a character, even though like as an audience member, I think Penelope is 
a more complex, beautiful, wonderful person than everyone in the show sees her as. But yeah, it's still like really cool that they kept Madame Julie on. <laughs> oh, agreed. It's always a delight to hear her voice. <laughs> yes, forever, forever and always. Now, I would love to know, Abby, what are some other scenes? Because of course, we've talked about a few f- so far. What are some other scenes in the two seasons that either surprised you or affected you or that you'll just remember for a really long time? I would have to say, for lack of better words, the Whisper campaign in season one with Burbrook and with Daphne, Lady Bridgerton, Violet, and their teams. So for context, basically, Burbrook has declared that Daphne will marry him, and Daphne does not wish for this to happen. So Lady Bridgerton starts kind of spreading amongst the staff of their household of other households really again we see through the working class through you know their time shopping at the market and in households working we see them chatting about this rumor about Burbrook that eventually reaches Lady Whistledown again (laughs) again adding strength to her claims and to her words and then eventually the marriage to Burbrook does not take place so I thought this was very, very interesting because in many ways it showed strength of women still within the period piece. So again, we hadn't yet reimagined gender according to a different time. It was very much kind of the vulnerability, the fragility of having someone declare they would marry you and not having the option to say no and seeing how they were trying to work around that and how they were trying to work with what they had at their disposal But I think in doing so, it still highlighted a lot of that vulnerability, a lot of the powerlessness of women at the time, of women of color at the time, and how they were very much kind of still within the margins, within kind of the backdrops. And that question of, yes, like it was a huge show of strength because ultimately she didn't marry him and and the rumor was hugely effective. But, you know, it was still strength from the back rooms and strength from the place that we don't see those are amazing points that you made. And what it makes me think of is the term and concept of gossip and how it's used so pejoratively in general, but also it's very heavily associated with women. I don't remember who I like learned this from, but I remember learning that like gossip is not actually a bad thing. Gossip just means like people talking to each other about something, (laughs) essentially. And of course, I can understand, you know, the concept of gossip being damaging If all you spend your time doing is talking meanly about people and talking about things that don't matter and and maybe obviously making up lies or anything like that, of course, that is not a great way to engage with other people. But I think that's what people think all talking is, especially amongst women, like that we just like are like judging people left, right and center and just being super malicious all the time when we say like, hey, did you hear that this happened to so-and-so? Like it's just assumed that it's just always negative. But what you were saying, I love because in this example, it's showing like, okay, we as women, we can't just outright say what we want, unfortunately. So we're going to use the only thing we really have power over, which is talking to each other. And I think that's actually such a positive way of showing it. I'm sure people still interpret that in the show as being like, oh, look at these women gossiping. But like, I interpret it positively in the sense of like, look what can happen when women band together in solidarity. So I absolutely love that as well. 
One of my favorite scenes from season one that I thought really affected me was in episode two when you see Simon the Duke as a child and Simon and his family are black and his father is like sort of far removed from him. So he hadn't seen him in a while and he came in and realized that Simon has a stammer. And the father ends up being extremely ableist in many ways, which is awful. But what was interesting about the scene was that his father is about to like hit him with a comb or something. I don't remember. And Simon says no. And he stands up for himself. And he's only like five or something, which is like so powerful. And basically his father gives a short speech about how like, hey, we were given this position in society, this higher class by the king and queen. And this is explored a lot in Queen Charlotte. And he says that, you know, we have to remain extraordinary to make sure that it's not taken away from us, essentially. And I thought that was a very sort of realistic conversation that could be had in our world, in today's world, or even back then. So I thought that was super powerful, even though the father is sort of one of the villains, I would say, in this season. It's sort of sad, I guess. It's sad in the sense that you feel empathetic of like, fuck, you're right, like, I guess racism ended now, but like, you still had to go through it because the father's a bit older. But then you also are conflicted because he's so cruel to his child. And I think at the end of the scene, he says he's dead to me or something like that. Or eventually he considers Simon to be dead to him, which affects a lot of this season. So it's like this duality of like humanity, I guess. It's a, it's a really sort of human way of showing this character of like showing, yes, he's been through a lot because of racism. And He's not being a great father because he's not being empathetic towards his child, etc. So that really struck me. What a scene that was. And I really hear you. I think they provided context and they provided like a bit of understanding as to why he might be acting in this way. However, I, I absolutely don't think it justified, you know, a lot of the harm he had caused and continued to cause towards Simon and towards a lot of folks in his surroundings. I think it was really reminiscent of another scene in, in Shondaland, in, in the Shonda universe from Scandal. Her father says to, to Lydia Pope, you know, we have to be twice as good to get half as much, I, I think was the line. And I think it's a very, very common, you know, understanding, a very common discussion, I feel, at least from what I've heard and, and experienced as a woman of color in terms of this recognition that, you know, because of racial discrimination, because of inequity, because of capitalism and white supremacy, at the end of the day, oftentimes you have to be extraordinary, as Simon's father said, to not only be recognized, but sometimes even to be seen as human and to be afforded kind of basic human rights. And I think in so many different cases, this is still present today. And again, it you know makes me ask that question, why couldn't we have more of an unpacking of the historical context? Why did we have to completely remove, <laughs> in many ways, these discussions of, of race that were still popping up, as you noted, and Lady Danbury too, you know, can we achieve this, you know, without this erasure and, and without kind of completely passing over these very important discussions? Personally, I find Lady Danbury's approach was interesting because I think it was coming still from that same undertone of responsibility, of the pressure of being the first, whether it be like the first member of nobility, member of the gentry, who was also a Black person, or the first member of of the town with a title was a Black person, you know, and she tells Simon to kind of be worthy of the space, be worthy of the attention you command. 
I think she shows us that you can do that without also inflicting harm to the, to the child and to the person. But I think the father, it did sort of feel like because we have experienced and continue to experience this immense and many forms of oppression, therefore, I will transfer all of this and more onto this child. And I think this was very harmful for Simon, as we see. And could this have been achieved another way? And I think, unfortunately, it was very reminiscent of a lot of situations and that happened and continue to happen today. But it also calls into question, you know, the harms ultimately of racism, racial discrimination, racial violence, and more. That was beautifully said. And I'd love to even sort of get into it more because. I feel like we both talked about a lot of this in the past. So it's sort of like depicting a little bit of, I feel like the failings of the show in the sense of like, they're telling us like, okay, so Queen Charlotte, who is a black woman, got married to King George. Oh my God, I forgot his name. Okay, <laughs> who's a white man. They get married. Obviously, this is depicted heavily in the show Queen Charlotte. Anyways, they've got married. So now racism is basically over. That is kind of what happens in the show. You don't actually really get any moments of outright racism towards people. As we've talked about before, what seems to be the more withstanding oppression is social class and of course patriarchy. That's like the biggest one. But like it's really social class that is shown to be the biggest like oppression. So it just brings to mind sort of the question of like, okay, so are they trying to tell us that like racism should be this easy to solve? Because maybe that's one thing of like, okay, look, we should live in a world where racism can be over from one day to the next. Or if they knew that they wanted to have a very diverse cast in terms of ethnicity, which is a hundred million percent an amazing thing and necessary thing to do. I feel like maybe another reasoning for the show could have been like, okay, well, if we're going to have a period piece that features actors of all different ethnicities, we want to bring it up in some way. But then racism is such a big topic that it's like, I don't know that you can just tell us that it's over. The thing that is a huge question to me is in season two, like, has India been colonized or not in this world? Do we know? Because they don't say anything. Again, the whole issue in season two with like Mary, the mom of Kate and Edwina coming back from India, and she sort of shunned because she had married someone again who was from a lower social class, or at least in British society. And so, and then she went to India with him and lived there for a while. And now she's back in England. But it's not an issue of race because, well, not in such a big way, because Queen Charlotte, you know, chooses Edwina to be the diamond of the season. Obviously, Edwina and Kate are very much admired, pursued, loved, obviously, ultimately by other people, white people as well. So anyways, obviously, I'm like completely rambling at this point. But like, it's such a big question because it's like, if in this world, if India has been colonized by the British... In no way could Indian people live in England as equals because that was just not the case. And so then it's like, okay, so maybe in this world, India hasn't been colonized. And it's just like, you know, you go down this rabbit hole. It's essentially, I guess, a cognitive dissonance that the show has given to us. I hope everyone understands I'm reflecting on this with the utmost respect. And the main reason I have all these questions is so that things make sense. I don't know. Oh my God, Abby, what do you think? <laughs> On a lot of what you were asking, I was also doing some digging because, you know, when watching Bridgerton seasons one and especially seasons two for the Kate and Edwina context, 
a lot of questions were coming up and, and a lot of articles were popping up about, first of all, the differences in the languages mentioned. So Kate had, had mentioned Edwina speaks Marathi, Hindustani, but then words that they were using were also in Tamil, in Bengali. So the differences in language, the difference in, you know, their last name Sharma, but then the different communities within India and the communities that the actresses initially were from. So a couple notes came to mind on that. And I think ultimately, from my understanding, most folks who were South Asian and specifically coming from India during Regency era London were arriving as workers. So they would mainly have been members of the working class during that time period. And it would have been very, very few, I think maybe one or two or three folks would have been actually part of the aristocracy or part of the nobility during that time period. I think there were one or two folks kind of in reality who were in Regency era London that we read about, but that would have been the exception, not the rule. And then, you know, similarly for a couple of the backstories in season one as well, the majority of where we would have seen people of color, so specifically South Asian characters and Black characters, would have been part of the working class. And I think that was an opportunity to tell a story that was missed, I feel, um, because I wish we had explored their lives, their dreams, the difficulty and the forms of oppression experienced. Because as you mentioned as well, we had a lot of time in the first two seasons to learn about misogyny, to learn about classism. There were so many comments, shout out Eloise, shout out Daphne, um, that were made, you know, on the difficulties of being a woman in Regency era London. And so it calls into question and it makes me ask again, you know, why had we just chosen, why did the Sharnas just choose racism as a form of oppression they were going to either kind of erase slash present differently when we were so clearly seeing all these other forms. And as we know, and, and as you mentioned, so many forms are intersectional. And it's hugely difficult to take one out and take one out and present one in isolation. So I think it was tough because I feel like an effect of that was erasure, you know, of not only the very real very meaningful lived experiences of people of color during the time period in early 1800s, I believe, London, and how, you know, through the centuries and throughout the years, they navigated this very, very hostile environment. I think also what was missed was an opportunity to have a specific and very authentic portrayal of either, whether it be, I think, both actresses were Tamil Indian of Tamil descent. So to either specifically portray that community as opposed to picking and choosing many different communities. Because I think on one hand, absolutely, it is a situation where many people can see themselves, you know, for sharing more languages and for sharing more communities. But I think the concern always is people of color, and, and in this case, specifically South Asian characters are often presented as kind of a combination of all the stereotypes or of all the cultures and communities because we don't have enough representation so they have to be everything and one has to be everything and has to be the best and the representation as opposed to just a human being or a very real person. I think this again just calls for more representation and more of these stories to be told is my hope from them. Absolutely. Honestly, I'm so curious to hopefully maybe one day hear from the writers and showrunners and 
sort of what their thought process was behind addressing race because also like as people watching it we don't live in that world obviously aspects of it in terms of misogyny and classism still exist today but we don't live in a world where racism has ended like when we're watching we still have the lens of like knowing what racism is that sort of brings me to a scene in episode six of the first season. Basically, so Daphne in the show is a white woman and Simon is a black man. They have gotten married and she does not really know anything about sex. So he had told her, you know, I cannot have children. And she resigned herself to not ever having children with him. Obviously more complicated than that. Of course, go watch the show if you haven't. Anyways, at this point in the episode, she has figured out that every time they were intimate, Simon would pull out early so as not to impregnate her. She thought that that was just what everyone did. And she finds out that's not the case. And that he is purposefully trying not to get her pregnant, which means that he technically could get her pregnant. Anyways, she's obviously upset about that. In the end, it feels like maybe there was just miscommunication or whatever. But what ends up happening is she sort of wants to test out this theory that he's doing it on purpose. So while they're intimate one night, he starts out by being on top of her and then she sort of forcefully goes on top of him and essentially pins him down and he does end up finishing inside of her. They both have sort of a discussion after, a heated discussion, I might add, about that after. And so there's a lot going on there because on the one hand, okay, so let's forget about race and now it becomes just, quote unquote, just a sexual assault slash rape situation. That's bad enough. But then like the reason I sort of segued to this specific scene is because in the real world, this is something that can happen, that there's violence from white people against black people. This scene really is very, I think, controversial. I see it, yes, as a rape, like to be perfectly blunt and honest, because Daphne's assumption was that Simon did not want to do something as they were having sex and she forced him to do it. And the reason I say it's controversial is because some people don't see it that way. And some people are just like, whatever. And by the way, this is exactly how it happens in the book. And I think that's so ridiculous to me because it's a pretty like pivotal plot point, I guess, to wrap up the end of the book and the end of the season. But like, it did not have to actually happen this way. And they changed so much else from the book to the show. All sorts of things that I think make sense. Because the books are honestly fairly identical to each other, if I'm being perfectly honest. You know, you can interchange any male and female leads in each of the books and nothing changes. So they did not have to keep this scene in, not in the way that it happened. They could have literally just like had a conversation instead. This was not acceptable in any context. And I think I wish that there had been a discussion, you know, either about consent or about sexual assault or a content or trigger warning for the episode itself, because I think there were many myths that they had the opportunity to address in the scene before or after the scene. First, I think that this was very much because, again, with no consent, this is sexual assault. In many ways, this was an unwanted situation from Simon's end, and Daphne did not acknowledge that and ignored that. And I think it was important to address that, like the importance of consent, the importance of making sure that both parties and, and anyone involved has an understanding of what is sex, what does that involve? And I think Daphne did briefly touch on that at the end where I think she had said you know, something like she was mentioning that kind of not having that awareness and not having that understanding. But again, 
this is not a justification for sexual assault or rape. And I think, again, just because Simon and Daphne are married, just because they're in a relationship, that is also not a justification for sexual assault or rape. So ultimately, I think both perspectives of, yes, Daphne was not aware and Daphne was not informed and either should have been informed either by, you know, this was a reflection on society as a whole, on parenting, absolutely, but also on the relationship itself with Simon. And it did call into question, you know, the importance of, for any couple, but especially during this time period, which unfortunately I cannot imagine would have happened, you know, having honest conversations with your partner about sex. It was really concerning on many levels, ultimately, to see and also to see like no follow-up, no discussion after, I think made it even more concerning. There was no apology, there was no acknowledgement on Daphne's end of what had happened. I wish it had been better addressed. Absolutely. In fact, she does address it in a way where she shows that she was in the wrong. She says this, I mean, you took advantage, you seized an opportunity, and so I did the very same. The context is larger there, but She's admitting that she took advantage of him. She also says, you do not trick, then humiliate the one you love. And that's what she did to him. And it's like the writers framed it as Daphne being in the right, because Simon was wrong for not being clear that he didn't want kids, even though he physically could have them. I mean, Simon says that he assumed that Daphne knew the totality of what sex entailed. But even then, it could have been so simple. All they had to do was just not include that intimate scene. They could have included a scene where like Daphne storms in and says, hey, have you been, you know, pulling out early, et cetera, et cetera. And they could have had the exact same conversation, to be honest, without her assaulting him, basically. I don't think the writers saw it that way because the rest of the season, like you said, you know, Daphne doesn't apologize. Simon, quote unquote, comes around in the sense that like, okay, Daphne ends up being pregnant and then she, they talk, et cetera, stuff happens. And now he's happy that they're having a kid. And that very well could be a genuine like course of action if this were to happen in real life. But the fact that she doesn't even apologize, like just in the sense of being like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Not even her being like, hmm, you know what, I could have gone about this a different way. Like what? This is definitely the most, most, most egregious part of the first two seasons for me and certainly of the books as well it was just so surprising that they didn't change that from the books they changed so much season two is like barely recognizable from the books you know at least from the halfway point and there's no good way to explain it it's like did they want to show it like oh look a woman is like being empowering by like i don't know like going against her man like it's not like oh it's just like very very icky I hope people realize that because I saw way too many articles or just people just being like, eh, like, what are you talking about? Why are you exaggerating? It's not rape. And it's like, mm, except it is. On a lighter note, why don't we dive a bit more into season two? Because <laughs> I adore that season. <laughs> I've rewatched it many, many times. There are so many scenes in season two that I rewatch. I always have to pause because I'm like, I'm about to throw up with like love for what's happening and just like <laughs> adoration for everything I'm witnessing. What would be like one of the scenes that you remember a lot from season two, let's say? Okay, there's two, I'd say two main ones. One is Edwina being named the diamond of the season. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad they did that for so many reasons. And two is the discussion between Lady Danbury and Kate when Kate is remarking that Lady Danbury is content alone. And then she says, I've lived a life. I'm a widow. I have love. I have lost. 
I've earned the right to do whatever I please, whenever I please, and however I please to do it. And this was Lady Danbury's response. So many reasons. Would love to hear your thoughts on both. I think the Edwina being named Diamond of the Season, I think, was really emotional for so many women, so many girls watching. I mean, hopefully young kids are not watching. <laughs> so, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> not too sure about that. But I think just for folks in general, because... First of all, Kate and Edwina are both darker skinned South Asian women, which is very, very rare to see in any media whatsoever, let alone as romantic leads, as a romantic ideal, as the diamond of the season. So I think it was a really emotional moment as a whole for this to just be the case without question and for the Queen have to, to have declared it as such. And I think Lady Danbury's discussion with Kate was really, really interesting because we finally, for a brief moment, got to see behind and learn about Lady Denver as a human just briefly. Because I did feel like she was doing so much labor <laughs> throughout both seasons, kind of making sure everyone was behaving <laughs> properly, for lack of better words. So it's wonderful to see a bit of her life and a bit of her as a person. I absolutely love those scenes as well. I love Edwina. I mean, and I also love all the actors on the show. I think they do an amazing job. And I feel like especially, this is a bit of a tangent, but like, especially in season two, it feels like there was so much love and care from everyone on the show, like to make the show and to show that it meant something to them and that it was special to them. I'm not an actor, okay? But like, I'm sure just like any other job, when you're an actor, you go on set or you do a show or a movie and you don't love it. You're not invested in it, but you do your best and whatever. And that I think is like super valid. But what it seems like for this season, especially, is that everyone just put so much love into it. And that just really came through to me. Can we also talk about before Edwina gets named as Diamond of the Season, at that ball, at the beginning of the scene, you actually get the classical music rendition of Madonna's Material Girl. Like, I love that. We need a moment for the soundtrack as a whole and all of the renditions and how they surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> Wrecking Ball was that moment for me. I think hearing Wrecking Ball, I was like, wait. <laughs> but yes, yes. Oh my God. Especially like what was funny about the Wrecking Ball scene, so this is the end of the season, is like when it first starts playing, you get like an aerial shot of the musicians like reading from the sheet music. And I'm like, oh yes, of course, naturally, the sheet music to Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. You know, like, not because not sheet music doesn't yeah. exist, but just like the hilarity of it being set in the Regency era and having them in period costumes and period instruments and then starting to play Wrecking Ball. That was so good. I actually, I love all the ball scenes in this season I thought they were all um, really special if we dive into that ball scene at the end of season two of course there's so many other scenes throughout that are super touching I mean let's just at least acknowledge Jonathan Bailey Simone Ashley who are the leads of season two as Anthony and Kate I think their chemistry is like off the charts it is so beautiful it is so well done it is so convincing I just absolutely wanted to shout them out because they're such beautiful people. I'm not sure who said this, but I remember reading somewhere they spend so much time looking at each other and breathing. <laughs> Just so heavy breathing. And I think whether it be they worked on this or they had a discussion about it, I think they convey so much with just the looks and also like, the space between words like the pauses like they just did pause really well in season two the looks i mean simone's i would say eye and eyebrow acting is like unparalleled there was like the moment at the end of the season where she asks antony 
to dance with her essentially. And it's like, I feel like the first moment that she's like, you know what? Yeah, I like you. <laughs> Let's at least dance. She was still sort of probably going to end up going to India and then doesn't by the end. But anyways, at that moment, she's like, let's just have this one last dance. And then basically towards the end of the dance, there's like a moment where their hands are touching, but above their heads and they're slowly descending like in front of their faces. And they stop sort of around the mouth area and Simone's eyes like Kate's eyes just like go really big and she like lifts her eyebrows and I remember that like went viral on TikTok and people were trying to like recreate um her like eyebrow movement it was so beautiful and funny it was so special because she's conveying so much with just that look there was so much vulnerability there and oh my god there's another scene I think like in the library like halfway through the season where there's like a specific look that she gives Antony that always like takes my breath away because she's so stunning and beautiful and her eyes are so like meaningful. So like, holy moly, like that's why I keep saying like, I want to throw up is in like a good way. It's because I'm so like affected by what's going on. Simone Ashley's eyes and eyebrow acting, for lack of better words, needs its own episode. <laughs> I hope there's edits. I feel like there's probably edits floating around of this, but just her eyes, the bee scene, yes. her eyes and eyebrows, the ball scene, her eyes and eyebrows, the the end scene, her eyes and eyebrows, insert scene here, her eyes and eyebrows. Oh my goodness. Wow. So much being said with such little movement. I love the B scene now that you brought it up. I love it because it's a moment where Antony sort of lets his guard down because he's panicking because Kate gets stunned by a B, which is how his father passed away. And he's really worried that something's going to happen to her now that she got stung by B. And she puts his hand to her heart to show him, like, I'm unharmed, I'm fine. And the way that she delivers the line, it was just a B like shivers it's just like the most beautiful tone to her voice but also the way she's looking at him trying to get him to calm down was so gentle and beautiful and then of course they keep going back to being enemies for a little bit longer <laughs> yeah now that i've established you're alive we can hate each other i think it's such a good pairing because they both have like the same issue i guess you could call it of like doing everything they do for their family and putting their needs down and for antony it's coming from a place of like i don't want to fall in love because if me and someone else love each other and if something happens to me like it happened to my dad it's gonna leave me or the other person distraught like it did my mom and so he's trying to find a match for himself that is not about love which is why he goes after edwina it's so like wild the lengths they go to to avoid telling each other that they actually have feelings for each other. Though, another scene. You know which scene. I know exactly what you're going to say. Okay, in episode five, <laughs> when the Bridgertons and the Sheffields, who is Kate and Edwina's mom's family, essentially, they're having dinner and the Sheffields are being just awful people. Antony kicks them out. And then he basically is going to end the engagement with Edwina because of multiple reasons. And Kate and Antony go to a drawing room to sort of discuss because Kate is like, no, you can't do this, et cetera, whatever. And basically what happens in that scene is that Antony admits to Kate that he is so attracted to her. He's basically in love with her without saying that, that if he does marry Edwina, they're going to be linked together forever and he's never going to stop thinking about her. But it all starts with Kate sort of not really understanding, though I'm sure deep down she does, just being like, I don't see what the problem is of you marrying my sister because I'm leaving for India. And then he says, 
the most beautiful, like, quotable viral thing that went viral on TikTok. So he replies with, and I quote, and it is not far enough. Do you think that there is a corner of this earth that you could travel to far away enough to free me from this torment? Then he says other things. And then he ends by saying, you are the bane of my existence and the object of all my desires. It's just so good. It's so good. And the internet collectively exploded with glee. <laughs> yes. I just remember like video after video on TikTok of people like lip syncing the, the whole speech. <laughs> and every time I watch it now, I also do that because also I have the captions like on the screen so I can follow along. But like, oh my God, the intensity, the chemistry in that scene is so wild it's so good i would have loved to see outtakes for that i'm sure there's somewhere but i want to know how many times they had to practice that i want to know what it looked like i want to know like you know what was happening behind the scenes i think also what i forgot to mention too about simone's eye and eyebrow amazing skills general amazingness was the vulnerability there and how we see kind of because she has so many walls up throughout and and as you mentioned so both of them have had many many walls and like many barriers in place like Anthony to not fall in love Kate so she can secure a good match for Edwina I feel like all the walls are always meeting as opposed to them meeting as two people and two two people who are in love with each other and I feel like when Anthony says his iconic (laughs) few lines and (laughs) when everyone kind of is like oh my goodness and then when we see her doing the eye and eyebrow acting and when we see like their eyes meet, I feel like it's when we really get to see Kate and Anthony being Kate and Anthony without kind of all of what they're carrying with them. So I thought that was really beautiful and really honest. And they did such a good job portraying that. Oh my God, yeah. And it seems like from interviews and social media stuff, it really seems like behind the scenes as well that they're great friends and got along extremely well. And I think that's so nice. Like I mentioned before, like I'm sure it's still very possible as actors to maybe not enjoy what you're working on or whatever and still do an amazing, amazing job. But it is just nice as a viewer to sort of quote unquote know as much as we can know (laughs) that they enjoyed making this season, that they enjoyed each other's company. And I don't know, it just seems to really flow through the screen. It's that type of season of a show that I can watch forever and ever and ever because it's so well done. And at this point, I want to know if you have any other thoughts on this, general thoughts or final thoughts on the first two seasons of Bridgerton before we wrap things up. First, thank you for this wonderful chat. It's always a great chat with you, but even more so to chat about shows and to chat about scenes we've both seen. I think kind of overall, with any show, there's always a ton of feedback and there's always a ton of change that can be made. I think with Bridgerton in particular, with what they were trying to move forward with the introduction of the new world, this reimagined society they were working on, I think it did bring about so many questions as we discussed and so many areas they could have specified or improved on. And I think at the same time, they also made a lot of beautiful moments. So I think Kate and Edwina as a whole were standouts for me. Kate's scenes, Edwina's scenes as the diamond, Simone's eyebrows and eyes. But just watching them be romantic leads, be 
the pursuit, like kind of the object, well, well, literally <laughs> the <laughs> object of the affections of the ton, but specifically Anthony and the other male leads was really important finally to see it. And I think, again, you know, it calls for, and I'm hoping for more and more shows and more and more situations where we can, again, have more complex, wonderfully unpacked, hopefully, characters who are people of color, Black characters, South Asian characters, characters with disabilities, characters who are queer, more and more in shows. So I hope that in future seasons, the writers take into consideration a couple of the conversations that have been happening not only here, but in other places. And I hope you continue to see that. Absolutely. I second everything you just said. And by the way, I'm so glad you came on and we could talk about this together. I mean, we've talked about this show so much and so many other shows and I can't wait to have you back. But yeah, this show in particular has such strong moments. And then like we talked about at length, many moments that are problematic, moments that were not well thought out by the writers or creators. And by the way, I'm not trying to like super diss on writers because <laughs> at the moment of recording, writers and actors in the States are still on strike and I 1000 billion percent support them. I'm not trying to you know, diss on them at all. But yeah, in this particular show, certain particular moments that we discussed could have gone different ways. Like you said, I'm also hopeful for the future seasons. And I think it's just a really interesting show to have these larger conversations about because there's so much to unpack and then so much to fawn over, especially in season two. I'm just like such a stan of that season. <laughs> so Abby, the last task I have for you is to take about 10 seconds or less to summarize Bridgerton so that even people who ignored my spoiler warning and haven't watched the show yet but listened to this episode will be convinced to go and watch both seasons one and two and Queen Charlotte, of course, which we'll do in a separate episode. Abby, go. Oh my goodness. Chemistry. Staring. More, <laughs> st more staring. Heavy breathing for some reason. The patriarchy. <laughs> Race that is not discussed. Uh, <laughs> concerns. Joys. Oh. Sparkles. Mm. And glamour. Oh. And questions. <laughs> oh my god. Iconic. <laughs> That's all I have. That's all I have, I promise. I absolutely love that. My little summary and comparison is quite boring. But basically, this show is like candy if you enjoy romance, meaning it is just a pure delight and you really cannot stop watching despite all these concerns that we raise which are absolutely valid it is such a bingeable show um but it is not suitable for children i cannot state that enough it's lovely maybe not for younger kids absolutely abby thank you so so much for being here i cannot wait until you come back we have so many other shows that we've decided we want to talk to each other about on the podcast but where can people find you in the meantime on the internet thank you so much for having me caitlin and for folks who are listening please check out all the other episodes of watch the podcast i can be found on instagram on facebook at abby kc and please feel free to reach out with any comments feedback suggestions thoughts at any time. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's the show. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at WatchedItPod or by email at watchedipod at gmail.com. Make sure to let us know if you can say watched it when someone brings up Bridgerton and share your 10 second summary with us. We would absolutely love to read them. Happy watching and see you next week.